This episode was recorded on June 10th, 2017. Today we are talking with Rachel Sachs from Washington University in St. Louis. Rachel is a scholar of innovation policy and explores the interaction between IP and health law. Rachel's work explores problems of innovation and access, considering how the law helps or hinders these problems. She's a widely published scholar, having published in the Harvard and Yale Journals of Law and Technology, among many others. Rachel, you've done a lot of work on the microbiome, which is a concept that's probably not too familiar to a lot of our listeners. So could you explain to us what the microbiome is and why it is so important these days? Absolutely. So the microbiome is the community of microbes that live within each of our bodies the bacteria, viruses, protozoa that exist in hopefully a symbiotic relationship with our bodies, at least most of the time. And studies estimate that the number of these microbes within our body may um, equal or even exceed the number of our own cells. Now, until recently, nobody really paid attention to the microbiome, but even just within the last five or 10 years, it's become quite the focus of research, and not just in uh, scientific publications, but the popular press has also become quite interested. And the reason they become interested is that the microbiome has been linked to almost every disease you can think of. It's been linked to autoimmune disorders like diabetes and arthritis, mental health conditions like schizophrenia and depression, and of course to a range of conditions affecting our intestinal systems like Crohn's disease and antibiotic-resistant infections. You're the leading scholar studying the microbiome, but I know you've done work in the past that sort of led you up to this particular field. So could you start by talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I was fortunate during my fellowship at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School to work with uh, the staff and the directors of Open Biome, a nonprofit uh, working in Boston, doing some very exciting research and treatment into the microbiome. And so I first became interested in the food and drug regulatory aspects of uh, the microbiome. And initially, I had written this paper essentially arguing that the FDA had a choice to regulate microbiome-based technologies as drugs or as tissues, more like blood. And the FDA chose to regulate the microbiome as a drug. I've argued that this was incorrect and that the FDA should have chosen to regulate the microbiome as a tissue rather than a drug. But the FDA's choice in this manner has effects. The choice to regulate it as a drug means that microbiome-based therapies have to go through the long, expensive series of clinical trials that we think uh, are required for FDA approval of drugs sort of standardly. And that has effects for companies looking to develop therapies that are based around the microbiome. So we'll try to unpack those arguments during this episode of the podcast, but just to press you a little bit more on some background information and on what led you to study the microbiome in particular, you were talking initially about one very specific type of microbiome-based therapy, right? Um, Fecal transplantation? So the fact that fecal transplantation was regulated by the FDA as a drug rather than as tissue, is that something that impacts both future regulation and future research on the microbiome, or is it restricted to that particular field? I think it is broader. It's difficult to say because the 
order of the tissue reference group within the FDA was never uh, publicly released, or at least the, their reasoning for making this determination was not publicly released. So it's difficult to say how broadly it extends, but from my conversations uh, with companies, with academics, it sounds as if the FDA understands the microbiome as a whole and the microbes that live within and on our bodies to not be a tissue to be regulated um, as a drug in the sense that we seek to change their composition or affect their behavior. Okay, and as you mentioned, this will have um, an impact on FDA regulation, on FDA policy, on research, basic research, um, but it's not just uh, food and drug law uh, that's impacted here, right? Because intellectual property is also a strong um, component in this puzzle. So could you just give us a brief description of what the IP framework for the microbiome looks like? Yes, absolutely. So I got into this second project by realizing that, the, as I said a moment ago, that the FDA's decision to regulate um, the microbiome and microbiome-based therapies as a drug has effects for companies operating in this space. Because in intellectual property, and specifically in patent law, we tell a story that if there's anywhere we really need patents to encourage and promote innovation, it's the pharmaceutical industry. And the reason for that is essentially that patents are critical to enable companies to preserve their investments into these products where the cost and the time to market is extremely high, where there's an extreme risk of failure, and where the products that are ultimately produced are very easy to copy. And so once I realized that these microbiome-based companies were being shifted into this framework where they were going to require clinical trial completion before FDA approval, I realized that patents were going to become much more important. And so I began looking at the intellectual property landscape in this space. And it turns out that just as the microbiome is an uneasy fit with the food and drug approval process, it's an uneasy fit with the patent system as well. And there are a whole set of legal doctrines which will make it difficult for microbiome companies to obtain the types of patent protection we think are typical in the pharmaceutical space where most companies have a patent or a series of patents on the compounds in question and then additional patents maybe on formulations or methods of use and the like. Could you just um, talk a little bit more about that? Why would it be um, difficult for companies that do research in the microbiome field to get this patent? So um, any particular doctrines um, that in patent law that make that hard? Yeah, so in order to uh, get a patent on sort of the core technology, which in many of these cases will be essentially a combination of microbes, uh, 35 U.S.C. Section 101 and Section 112, these are the two sections of the patent statute that deal with patent-eligible subject matter, and then the written description and enablement requirements will serve as a barrier. So just to say a little bit more about the patentable subject matter requirement, uh, as many patent scholars will know, let us all recall the case from 1948 Funk Brothers, right? This case involved a patent on exactly the kind of technology we're dealing with here, a combination of different strains of bacteria. Now in that case, the combination was being used as a fertilizer. It helped plants fix nitrogen from the air. 
But even though the combination was new and useful, the Supreme Court invalidated the patent, essentially on product of nature grounds. And if you take Funk Brothers seriously, especially in light of recent precedent, including Mayo and Myriad, 101 will bar a lot of the most central claims you'd want on these technologies. Okay. And you also mentioned a couple uh, of other doctrines in, in patent law, so besides uh, patent eligibility? Yeah, so written description and enablement are two other doctrines which will pose barriers to companies seeking these core patents. So for written description, you're, you're quite literally going to have what we often refer to as a genus species problem. So researchers hoping to protect technologies involving strains from the genus Lactobacillus or Bacteroides, they can't claim all such species, but they have to describe particular species and maybe also their functional characteristics. And just for our listeners who might not be that familiar with the genus species problems, why can't researchers claim the entire sequence? Right. We're, we're concerned about researchers who are seeking to claim more than they have actually discovered. We're concerned about researchers locking up technologies that haven't actually been discovered. And so we want to be sure that uh, uh, researchers have claimed adequately and appropriately the scope of what they and they alone have invented. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you were um, talking about written description and you also mentioned enablement. Enablement, mm -hmm. yes. And this is more of a scientific question. And so when I speak to scientists, it's my understanding that simply stating even a particular bacterial species isn't sufficient to tell another scientist how to make and use the invention. Different strains of a particular species may behave quite differently along a number of dimensions depending on uh, the media in which they were grown, the conditions under which they were uh, cultured, and the amount of information you would have to disclose in enabling a patent might make the patent too narrow to be of real value to its holders. Mm -hmm. And just again, for the listeners who are not as familiar with patent terminology, so by enablement, what do you mean exactly? And what does the law mean, right? Well, one of the social bargains inherent in the patent system is that we, the government, will give you a, an extended period of exclusivity or to make, use, and sell the technology that you've invented, but you also have to disclose it to the public. And so enablement is designed to be sure that uh, uh, other scientists are able to uh, replicate the work that you've done and you've disclosed sufficient information to enable them to do so. Mm -hmm. And assure that there will be follow-on research um, yes, exactly. in that area? Yes. Okay. Uh, what is the landscape, the competitive landscape around the microbiome? It's right actually quite rich. So it's still quite early in the field's development. We're really only a few years out of a lot of some of these very exciting early scientific breakthroughs uh, is really quite exciting to see how uh, the companies in this space have developed. The field has only been active for a few years in terms of spawning companies and, and spinning off companies from academic institutions, but seeing the number of companies operating in this space and seeing the types of deals that are being executed between smaller companies and large companies is very exciting. Now the field certainly isn't scientifically mature. There are a huge number of unanswered questions and there are real, uh, 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 real debates about how far exactly the field can go 
uh, under current scientific knowledge. And we're looking for new breakthroughs, and there's a lot of new scientific funding. But the point of this paper is to say that what we observe in the microbiome space in terms of uh, companies and in terms of VC investment and the like is far beyond what we would have expected in the absence of traditional patent protection. So you're also a scholar of um, innovation beyond um, IP, so you challenged with other people this notion that um, IP-based incentives are the sine qua non of all types of biopharmaceutical. Um, innovation in the microbiome, as you mentioned, is one of um, those areas where we're seeing um, that IP is not the only form of incentivizing um, innovation. So how do we make sure that we incentivize uh, innovation around um, the microbiome? Well, I think one of the great things is that we already have. So in the pharmaceutical industry, we always talk about patent law, and of course there are there's some patents in the microbiome space, but they're not as central as they are in other areas of the industry. And instead, what pharmaceutical or what microbiome companies are doing is they're looking to the many other incentives we've specifically placed into the pharmaceutical industry. So they're looking uh, ahead to 12 years of FDA exclusivity, because these will be biologic products. Uh, they're relying on trade secrets to protect themselves in the interim. There are large government grants available. Of course, there are R&D tax credits. A number of technology transfer offices have begun to uh, create and license strain libraries akin to the compound libraries that we often see them doing in the traditional pharmaceutical space, but they're not primarily dealing in uh, patent licensing. And so we're seeing companies and technology transfer offices and venture capitalists and all of the different actors within the system make use of the rest of the innovation incentives we've built up around the pharmaceutical industry because we do know that this is an area where we absolutely need to encourage follow-on innovation, follow-on research. And so I think fortunately what my research here shows is that at least in some cases, and we can ask about how generalizable this research is, and we should ask that, and I do ask that, there are areas in which patents may not be as central as the conventional wisdom has long told us. So Rachel, I'll ask the question um, because you bring it up at the end of, um, of your paper. Um, so what are the most generalizable points um, that you can uh, make after extensively studying the microbiome? Right. So in the pharmaceutical industry and in policy, we typically consider two different categories of products, small molecule drugs and biologics. And small molecule drugs, which have historically dominated the pharmaceutical market, are very easy to copy. So once they've been released, uh, the standard chemical synthesis can reverse engineer them. So we're talking about drugs like aspirin. Yes, exactly. So uh, um, small molecule drugs like aspirin uh, can be made in a laboratory and they're fairly simple to make. It might not be um, obvious on first glance, but these can be fairly quickly reverse engineered. Whereas newer pharmaceuticals like biologics, these are large molecules made in living cells. And these really can't be imitated, not yet, at least to the same degree that small molecule drugs can. So the ease of imitation of small molecule drugs is much higher than for biologics. And other scholars, including Artie Rye and Nicholson Price, have already written about the importance of trade secrets in biologics. So biologics companies 
may choose to protect their investment using trade secrets rather than patents because they know that companies will find it difficult to replicate their inventions. And so if microbiome-based technologies are more like biologics in that they're not self-disclosing, then it might be that these findings generalize only to biologic drugs and they don't generalize to small molecule drugs where we might still think that patents are a core incentive to develop them in the future. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was Rachel Sachs discussing her work on the microbiome. The episode is available on the Jeharis Health Law Institute website and on iTunes.